Okay, for our first message, it'll be brought to us by Mr. Reg Noland. It is entitled, Correlation of Stone Personalities and Tribal Characteristics. Okay, this is part two of um, my series that I'm doing on the stones in, uh, used in scripture. Uh, this one is on the correlation between the personalities of the stones and the tribal characteristics. Last time on um, okay. Last time on precious stones in scripture, we discovered that the stones prescribed in the breastplate of the high priest were selected and arranged in a specific order from right to left, top to bottom, as listed in Exodus 28 and 39. Okay. I still can't see that. Um, but the modern, uh, modern translation of the names uh, of the stones and the pra practicality of which the stones were uh, engravable makes questionable whether the, each stone was actually in the breastplate. Further, we discovered that there, there are two possible sortings um, for, the, uh, uh, for the assignment of each stone to a particular tribe based upon two different things. The natural birth order, as listed in Genesis 30, and the one that is um, one based upon sorting by the mother in homage to the marriage, but which replaces Dan uh, in the original by uh, Joseph and... and well, actually, it replaces Dan and Joseph with Joseph's two sons, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. Okay, those were by his Egyptian wife, Asenath. Um, let's see. The, in addition, we concluded that we reject the assignments made by some scholars who follow the marching order uh, of the tribes as listed in Numbers 2 and 3, uh, because that's contrary to the injunction of Exodus 28.10, where the tribes are said to be listed in order of their birth. That's very, very important. I also, and you can accept either one, the natural birth, birth order sort or the mother sort, either one, they're still listed in order of birth, but not the camping order. That, that's not at all in the, in the order. Uh, I gave a description of the stones, the possible stones used. But I will go into further detail today into what their inside, their personalities are, and then we will forge the link between the stone being used and the tribe that is assigned to it. Okay, so here are our two possible um, assignments. Okay, uh, first, this is the original, and I'll step back so I can point to things here. Come on. There we go. Okay, so starting from the right and working to the left, remember, because in Hebrew we read from right to left and top to bottom, we have uh, the first stone is the Carnelian. Probably it's, a, it's actually listed as Sardis in Scripture, but uh, it could be either a ruby or Carnelian. The likelihood is that it's going to be Carnelian simply because the ruby is too hard to engrave, unless they have something very special I'm going to talk about a little bit later. Next is the topaz stone, but this could be peridot um, instead, or uh, which is the um, crystallite version of uh, ol ol olivine, 
which is a little bit softer to engrave. Next, we have uh, the third uh, the third stone, the farther leftmost in the in the first row, is going to be a carbuncle and a carbuncles. Uh, today we would call a garnet. The next one is uh, this one. Uh, it is uh, in the second row, rightmost position. It is listed in scripture uh, as emerald, but it could have been emerald is again very hard, so it could be also uh, turquoise. The next one in the middle uh, should be sapphire, uh, but uh, again, sapphire is hard. Uh, sapphire and rubies are hard, uh, second hardest only to diamond, so they're very, very difficult to engrave. So this is more likely to be lapis lazuli, or lapis lazuli, depending on how you want to pronounce it. The next one over is the diamond, and a diamond, of course, is the hardest of all of the uh, crystals, so that's not likely to be the one that's included in the, uh, in the uh, plate. Rather, we would have um, uh, uh, crystal quartz instead here. Next position here, this one, is what's called Liger. The Liger is only mentioned one place in, in uh, or only in this location in Scripture. It is what we would call today uh, red uh, tourmaline or rubellite would be the best one. That have. By the way, I gave you a little uh, booklet here that has all of this, much of this information in it for you, uh, for your benefit. All right, so this is uh, either uh, probably liger, which is uh, rubellite, but it could be also um, opal or something called jacinth, which today we would call zircon. Uh, the next one up is uh, asher. Oh, sorry, I don't want to give the assignments yet. Uh, next one up is uh, agate, and agate is a multi-striation uh, stone. It, colors can be anything from uh, red and black and white all the way to um, just plain grays. Next one up is uh, amethyst, which I think is one of the most beautiful stones around. Uh, it is a deep purple stone uh, and crystals there as well. No doubt about that one. There are several of these there. There's no doubt about, but there are others that are questionable as which ones are up. Uh, uh, fourth row, far right, is uh, members of the barrel group. Now, this could be the golden barrel, could be aquamarine, could be morganite, could be crystallite, could be chrysophase. Uh, several different possibilities. It's never stated which one, but it is some member of the barrel group. Barrel group is second only to diamonds, uh, rubies, and uh, sapphires. And the next one is uh, here in the center of the bottom is onyx, most likely, which is a black stone. Uh, but it could be sardonyx, which would be mixed with red. The word sardonyx, as you see, comes from the word sard, which is a reddish stone, and onyx, which is a black stone. You mix the two together, and you have a red stone with black streaks, and that would be the sardonyx that would be here. Last one is jasper in this position. And jasper... Um, uh, there are 15 different varieties, at least 15 different varieties of jasper. This is probably red jasper here. Okay, that was the original. This is the birth order sort by natural birth order. Okay, but here's what happens after the change that takes place. All right, instead of, let's see, uh, we still have Reuben in the first position with Sardis. Uh, or Carnelian. We still have Simeon in the 
second position with uh, Topaz or uh, Peridot. Uh, we still have Levi in the third position with Carbuncle or Garnet. We still have Judah in the uh, second row, rightmost position with Emerald. Um, we still have, uh, uh, but this time, notice what's happened. We now have changes starting here. What was positioned to be Dan, go, Dan goes away. Dan completely disappears from this breastplate here instead. Instead, what happens are the two additional um, sons of Leah, which are Issachar and Zebulun, this one and this one, move up to this position so we have all of Leah's children here together in one location. Okay, so this one now becomes, uh, so uh, Sapphire gets assigned to uh, Issachar, and Diamond gets assigned to Zebulun. Then the others bump their way up as well, and we have then the Liger is now assigned to Naphtali, and the Agate to Gad, the uh, Amethyst to Asher, and the Barrel goes to new, new entry in the block. This is Manasseh, which is the second son, uh, sorry, the firstborn son of uh, Joseph in Egypt. Notice again, they're still in order. Uh, this will be his firstborn, and the Ephraim will be the nextborn, which is the secondborn to Joseph in Egypt. And then finally, Benjamin brings up the end. Notice what the difference is. There's slight differences, but it depends upon whether you're doing a natural birth order sort or uh, the mother sort. Does that make sense? Okay, all right. Okay, now, last time... Something I would like to give credit to my good friend Ron Cole back here, who last time challenged me uh, on the idea that the hard stones were too hard to engrave and had to be replaced uh, by more workable stone, which I just talked about here. That challenge sent me in a whole new branch of study. The, the statement that I made that the stones of diamond, corundum, which is rubies and sapphires, at topaz and the barrel were all too hard to grade with mechanical tools of that age is true. But I did not consider the non-mechanical means of engraving the stones. As it turns out, there is a legend that explains how those super hard stones could be engraved. Okay. <coughs> In the Kabara, which is the, um, oh, let's read from here, yeah, which is the uh, portion of the Talmud uh, consisting of the rabbinical commentary on the Mishnah Torah, uh, there exists something called a shemir. A shemir. That's the Hebrew and Arabic uh, writings for it. Which is a, either a worm or a green stone that had the power to cut through or disintegrate stone, iron, crystals such as diamonds, rubies, sapphires, emerald, beryl, and topaz. Indeed, the word that is translated as diamond in Jeremiah 17.1 is Strong's um, H8068, which is Shamir, and it's the same term that is used for this legendary stone-hungry worm. Uh, King Solomon is said to have built, uh, used it in the building of the temple, uh, the first temple in Jerusalem, uh, in place of the of uh, metal cutting tools, since for the building of the temple, which promoted peace, it is quite inappropriate to use the tools that could also be caused for uh, bl blood and war uh, warshed. Okay, so here he, perhaps he was thinking about 1 Kings 6, 7. And the temple, 
when it was being built, was built with stone finished at the quarry, so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built. Okay, perhaps Solomon was remembering, uh, uh, it, it was remembering uh, God's injunction about building altars. And if you make an altar, come on, there we go, all right. And if you make me, make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it out of hewn stone, for if you, you put your tool on it, you profane it. Reference throughout the Talmud and the uh, Mishnah, uh, Midrashim, the um, Shamir was reputed to have existed in the time of Moses as one of the ten wonders created on the eve of the Sabbath just before Yahweh finished creation. Uh, Moses reputedly used the Shamir to engrave the Hoshan stones, that's what we're talking about here, the Hoshan stones, that were inserted into the breast of the high priest. According to this Talmudic legend, King Solomon was aware of the existence of the Shamir, but unaware of its location, so he commissioned the search um, that turned up a grain of the Shamir the size of barley corn, and with it he was able to cut the stones of the temple. Cut the stone of the temple. The material to be worked, um, uh, whether it was stone or wood or metal, was affected by being shown to the Shamir. You show, it, show the, the work to the Shamir, and the Shamir gaze cuts it into different pieces, according to the Following the, the line of logic, anything that can be shown something must have eyes to see. The early rabbinical scholars described the Shamir almost as a living being, as a stone-hungry worm. Okay. Now, other early sources, however, describe it as a green stone of power. For storage, the Shamir was always supposed to be wrapped in, at, at all times in wool and stored in a leaden box. Huh, that sound familiar for anyone? A leaden box. Um, uh, uh, any other vessel would burst into flames and disintegrate under the Shamir's gaze. The Shamir was said to have been lost or had lost its potency or had been hunted to extinction by the time of the first temple at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. Okay. Apparently, even its blood uh, could have a corrosive effect on stone, so they may have well been hunted to extinction just for their blood. But remember, this is not history written in stone, uh -huh. uh, but uh, it, it is instead merely Talmudic legend, transmitted orally only for centuries. Make of it what you will. Take it as a grain of salt or a grain of shamir, if you will. Uh, from a modern perspective, though, think about what that means. From a modern perspective, um, the description of this Shamir strongly resembles that of a nuclear pulse laser. 
what it does. Um, complete with the eye, with lenses, which are the eyes of the Shamir, and some kind of green radioactive power source, perhaps radium, that had to be kept in a lead-lined box. Uh, now, you're, when you get to that point, though, we're beginning to encroach on uh, the ancient alien astronaut theory. You're all familiar with that as well. There's an aliens are responsible for all of this. And whose advocates would evoke the uh, mandate of the third law of Arthur C. Clarke, which says any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So says Arthur C. Clarke. Now, I digress from my topic. I just wanted to give Ron credit for uh, sending me on this wild goose Noah's uh, excursion uh, that we have here. You know, this brings me about to my thesis, though. Here it is. I believe that Jehovah selected each stone to optimize the contributions of each tribe to the nation of Israel, either by enhancing a trait that they, are, they would need or by overcoming an inherent weakness. They so, we have two major questions uh, uh, that come up then. Which translation of the stone name do we use? And which sorting of the names do we use? These questions are of consequence because uh, the, the translation of the stone determines which of the stones are going to be used and the sort order determines how they're going to be arranged. So both of those questions turn out to be important. Okay, here then is a synopsis of it. This is what I just explained on the uh, previous slide, but I'll do it again here. This is the original order. Again, uh, again, notice the children of Leah. Uh, this, is in, this is natural birth order. All come first. Then we have uh, the shenanigans go on where uh, Leah sends in her, uh, no, Rachel sends in her handmaiden and uh, to lay with Jacob, and that he, she bears him uh, Dan and Naphtali. Okay, then Leah, not to be outdone, sends in her handmaiden, Zilpah, and uh, bears him Gad and Asher. All right, then uh, uh, Leah becomes fertile again and bears two more children here, actually three more. Uh, these are the two sons. There's another child born in between here, and that is Dinah. Uh, in between Zebulun and Joseph. All right, then Rachel finally uh, uh, bears Joseph as her, her ch firstborn child, and then later Benjamin as um, her second child. However, she dies in childbirth with Benjamin. Um, Joseph goes to Egypt, of course. We know that story. He, began, he is promoted to um, uh, the king's home. He marries uh, Asana, the daughter of Potiphar, uh, a priest of On, and she gives him two children. Uh, Manasseh is the elder of the two, and Ephraim is the younger, but Ephraim ends up getting the, the, the major blessing uh, because Joseph crosses, uh, Jacob crosses his hand. Remember that story? Okay. All right, then. Uh, here's where, again, as I said, what happens when you have... Uh, the, the post or the mother sort order. Okay? Uh, so we had again the first four children of Leah stay the same. These two children of Leah now move up into this position to join uh, their full brothers here at this point. The three that were born here to the, uh, excluding Dan of course, uh, the three that were born to the uh, 
handmaidens now follow suit after that. And in place of Joseph and the spot vacated by Dan, we fill in Manasseh and Ephraim. Then we have Benjamin, of course, bringing up the rear. And we'll see, how, see what the difference in the two sortings are. All right, now, there are blessings. Again, we do, we do note that the order and the positions of the stones do not change. Only the assignment of the stone to the tribe um, changes. Hence, my discussion of the trial arrangements of the stone will be in stone order, uh, where <coughs> or two stones assigned to the same stone, or, or depending upon the order, I will discuss the... Um, <coughs> natural childbirth order first, and then mention the mother's story in passing, as we will have already discussed the earlier tribe uh, earlier. That the stone selected and its position in the breastplate do not change suggests that uh, the arrangement may have meaning and or power independent of the tribe assigned uh, to it. They all have personality. All right, last time, here's something that happened. If so, this explains why sometime, some of you were strongly affected by the array of stones that I passed around last time. I didn't bring them this time because we did have some kind of effect. Several of you were affected by the stones themselves. Not everyone is inherently sensitive to the energies of the crystal, so perhaps God chose the Levites to be priests because they were sensitive to crystal energy. Perhaps those who were especially sensitive to crystal energies today may be descendants of Levi. Does that make sense? Um, who knows? You may be a distant Levite, particularly if you, have, uh, uh, if you belong to the same bloodline and can, can communicate with the stones on an emotional level. Not exactly in a word language, but in a, a language of feeling. Uh, now this may be a genetic trait. Yes, particularly if your children or your parents have the same kind of sensitivity to crystal energies. People who are sensitive to crystal energy but not aware of their sensitivity may interpret their experience as a migraine headache or nausea. That's one of the consequences of it if you don't know what you're doing. Uh, which comes from uh, trying to interpret non-linguistic communication in words instead of feelings. In such cases, I suggest that you simply feel, that you simply feel what the, the message is trying to tell you instead of trying to verbalize it. I, on the other hand, nah, I don't speak feeling. I don't speak feeling. So uh, I am nearly all cerebral and do not communicate in in uh, non-linguistic modes, although I acknowledge that such modes exist. I do not hear the stones, the language of the stones. I doubt that I could even have a thought that I could not express in words. Their energies may still affect me, eh, but I'm not conscious uh, of the effect. So the last question is, why is each stone, specific stone, assigned to a particular tribe? Honestly, I could not find any uh, scripture that gave a specific reason for why those specific stones were assigned to specific tribes. But I'm really, really, really sure that God doesn't do things without purpose. He's not a God of confusion. So uh, he had to have a reason for making those assignments. There's been no speculation about reasons for, for it, though. There's all sorts of scholars out there with all sorts of 
reason, some scholars propose the gemstones were associated with angelic beings. Uh, so that there was a, what happened with the stones was actually a reflection of the jostling for power that was going on at a spiritual level. Uh, others think it was some kind of a permutation between truthfulness and goodness with the realms of the celestial and the spiritual, while others believe it was completely random. Personally, as reflected in my thesis, uh, I think that the stones of the, uh, had a purpose and reflects a family trait. That's my idea, that the stones have a, reflect a, a, a family trait. After researching the uh, metaphysical properties of each stone and historically personnel traits for his tribe, as reflected in old Israel's prophecies of Genesis 49 and Moses' final blessings in Deuteronomy 33, I conclude... That, uh, as, a, as is my thesis, that uh, Jehovah selected the stone to optimize the contribution of each tribe to the nation of Israel, either by enhancing a trait they would need or by overcoming an inherent weakness that each one had. For personality traits are associated with each stone, and national traits are historically associated with each tribe as they migrate through, across, through time and across continents. So, let us begin. Hey, I'm going to have to... This is the general blessing uh, God gave upon the entire nation of Israel. Moses, uh, Exodus 19, 3-6 says, Moses went up to God and, and the Lord called to him uh, from the uh, mountain saying, this, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And now therefore... If you will uh, indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of uh, priests and a holy nation. Have you heard that before? Maybe in, in Peter? Okay. Uh, these are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. In Deuteronomy 33, we have, There is no one like God uh, of Jeshurun. Uh, who rise to heavens to help you, and, uh, and his excellency on the crowd. The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arm. Uh, Matthew did a message here a few weeks ago on uh, Psalm 27, with God is my uh, stronghold and my salvation. Um, this is relevant here as well. Let's see, where am I? Uh, yeah. The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting alarm. He will thrust out uh, the enemy from before you and will say, destroy, and then the uh, Israel will dwell in safety, the foundation of uh, Jacob alone, in a, grain, in a land of grain and new wine. His heavens shall also drop dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. Your enemies shall submit to you, and you shall tread down their high places. Now, while God selected uh, Israel to be his chosen people, even declaring himself to be their, their husband effectively, they were not always faithful to him. Uh, they were instead out playing the harlot with other gods of the region. Throughout history, Israel's two principal sins have been idolatry and Sabbath-breaking. That's two biggies among all the others. 
So while the sons of Jacob numbered 12, they came from four different mothers, as I've illustrated. Six came from Leah. All the sons of Leah are more or less above board. What you see is what you get. There are no surprises, just a refinement and variation of the main semblance. Six of the, the six sons of Rachel and the maidservants, Bella and Zilpah, however, all have some personality quirk of their own, lurking just below the surface. In Dan, it is resentment, a chip on the shoulder. In Naphtali, it is the need for a partner. In Gad, a seeking of pure approval. In Asher, it's a need for renewal of commitment on the other side. Joseph and Ephraim, um, Joseph through Ephraim, has an inward uh, inclination toward unpredictable changes in policy, while Manasseh is an opportunist and cashes in the chips if the going gets rough. Okay, so it's a really interesting story. In your uh, little handout I gave you, I may not have, no, I'm not. Uh, in the little handout I gave you, I gave you a chart that uh, gives you the uh, stone position, the possible stones there, the order, uh, who it was assigned to in the natural birth order, and who it was assigned to in the mother sort order. And I am out of time. Just when I was getting started on the in individual ones. Okay, but the, the, I've got all the, what I've provided in the rest of that little summer sheet are uh, nice little capsules, thumbnail sketches, if you will, of each of the different tribes. It has, um, let's see, the, the name of the tribe, the meaning of the word. For example, Reuben, see, a son, says Leah, because she brought forth a son thinking that would uh, secure uh, Jacob's love. I've got the mother's name. I've got uh, the uh, tribe's name in Hebrew there as well. Uh, the modern nation that they have descended from. I've got the symbol, the flag, the banner, and the shield, um, as well as the different shields that are being used, and, and the tribal traits as illustrated in Genesis 40, uh, 49 and uh, Deuteronomy as well. Okay, so um, I, I guess I'll just have to pick up here uh, next time. So part three. Part three coming up later. All right. Uh, this, is this worthwhile? Should I stop my studies on the rocks? Am I rocking your world too much or whatever? Or are you just totally stoned by now? All right. Thank you.